0: Welcome, welcome. This is My Recovery, part of the Much Love Family, where our topics are recovery-related and feature stories from recovering addicts all trying to get another day clean. My name is David, and the lovely man beside me is also David. He has an amazing 47-plus years clean, and we are blessed to have him share his experience, strength, and hope. I'll turn it over to you, David. All right. Thank you very much. Um...
1: So, Leslie, I've been instructed to what it's like, what it used to be like, what it what happened and what it's like now. So, um, can you turn the volume down a little bit? Thank you. I like hearing myself speak, but not that loud.
0: <laughs> not
1: a problem. Okay, so I, w- I was born and raised in Tampa, and uh, I, I'm only going to spend a a moment or two about, you know, what it used to be like, because I don't think it's necessary beyond the, um, purpose of identification. Okay. Is he really an addict? I was an addict before I ever thought about taking drugs. I'd wake up in the morning and I was the first one up wondering why nobody else was up. And I was busy always getting into trouble. Um, I had an addictive personality. My mother would make cakes and we would play seek and destroy. She would hide them and I'd find them. (laughs) And um, my mom had a very, very hard time. She was married to a selfish, self-centered, self-seeking, womanizing drug addict. Oh. And, um, you know, for anybody listening that doesn't understand that, they don't think or do anything for other people. You know, it's all about them. You know, go figure, addicts. Um, so my mother abused me for the entire time we were together. And then when my father divorced her, when he left her, he took me with him, which nobody saw coming, especially me. And I was just as happy as I could be. Really? Oh, yeah, because I was leaving physical and emotional abuse for my entire life. Makes sense. And um, little did I know my father was going to abuse me in the fact that he used drugs with me. Uh, That wasn't abuse to me in my mind because I was already using drugs. And it was like, uh, you know, two hippies living together. (laughs) And uh, I was the token kid, you know, because everybody around me was all grown up and I was fun to watch when they got me loaded, so I the got entertain. loaded a lot. Yeah, exactly. And um, so the reason that my father took me with him is because he was afraid if he left me, she would kill me. Wow. Oh. And I, you know, obviously after all these years, I've uh, re- refined my ability to to share the impact of, you know, what it used to be like uh, because, you know, the details don't really matter you know, abuse, physical, mental, emotional, um, is abuse. And it really doesn't matter the form it takes. It's devastating, uh, especially to a child. Years later, uh, many, many years later, when I said something to my mother one day about her abusing me, her mouth fell open and she had this shocked look on her face. And she said, I didn't abuse you, you abused me. And that was interesting because you know, perception is reality. And I think that because she was so abused by her husband, and in those days you didn't divorce, you didn't leave your spouse, uh, and that's just the way it was, even though my parents weren't religious at all. They they never went to church. They dropped me at, off at church as a babysitter. Uh, they made me go to the church down the street. Um But I was never uh, religious in any way, shape, or form. Um, Never knew anything about God until my grandmother told me he was all-loving and all-knowing and all-powerful. And so I prayed to him one night not to wet the bed because that's what the abuse was centered in, to wake up in a wet bed.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So I figured, well, God doesn't like me either. Because, you know, my brothers, my older brothers didn't like me. My mother didn't like me. My father was an invisible person in the house. He was there, but he really didn't exist. Um, He didn't participate in the family, really, hardly at all. Um, So fast forward to uh, leaving with my dad. He got remarried, and uh, she was the stepmother from hell. So I went to the streets using, uh, robbed my grandmother and my uncle, uh, they owned a, a grocery store in Lutz. Um, it's Hungry Harry's now. Yeah, i I'm, that, I'm,
0: I've been there many times.
1: Yeah, they used to be my grandfather's grocery store. Oh wow! And I spent many happy summers there. It was the the reprieve from the, the abusive. Escape. Yeah. And so um, I went to children's home. I went to reform school. I went, went to juvenile hall. I was in and out all the time. And then I went to re, uh, went to Naval Academy. My my grandmother spent way too much money to send me to Naval Academy for an entire 3 weeks. They they kicked me out. Um, I was not Naval Academy material. And um, then I went to re, uh, children's home for a year. Uh And then I went to reform school for a year after I robbed my grandmother and my uncle. And then I lived on the streets for the rest of the time. I was 15 or 16 when I I ran away from the children's home and uh, lived on the streets, uh, went to jail, got out of jail, hitchhiked to... Canada, but ended up in California. Never oh, had a, wow. never had a sense of direction, and I did all kinds of things. You know, I, I lied and cheated and stole. I, I was not your uh, hip slick and cool addict. I was uh, when I got to the program. I had a vocabulary yeah. of, f man, you know man, hey man, you got anything? Uh, let's get something. Let's go steal, lie and cheat and get something. I mean, that was my entire vocabulary, and that was also why my sponsor required me to get a dictionary when I got clean. So I had the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous in the dictionary. And um, for for those of you that may have a challenge with that, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous is our mother. And she gave birth to us and sent us out with blessings. And uh, our program is a direct um, copy of their program with uh, the one exception of the culture. And the only difference between AA and NA is culture. Alcohol is a legal drug, and, you know, most of the drugs we use are not. Uh, Obviously, there's the prescription side of it, but for the most part, it's illegal. And, uh, you know, alcoholics are somewhat upstanding citizens in a a lot of instances, and in most instances, uh, addicts aren't. So it's really just a cultural difference. Principally, it's exactly the same. So, uh, it's of great benefit to read AA material, um, to get a, a, even more thorough understanding of Narcotics Anonymous, where we, you know, where we came from. So, I was, uh, 19 when I got clean, uh, two months away from being 20. Uh, I just turned 47 in March and I turned 67 in May. And, um... I am happier right now than I've ever been in my entire life. I'm more excited about every aspect of my life, um, spirit, soul, and body. And um, when I got clean, I hated God with a spirit of murder. If you said anything to me about God, I would put my nose right in front of yours literally and cuss you out. Oh, wow. Um, I was as angry as angry can be uh, because God was my problem. You know, I can definitely relate. Yeah. And so it took me five years just to calm down with that. And it was another eight years before I had uh, uh, the spiritual experience that um, engendered my acquiring a higher power. And the journey from the the very beginning to the, you know, through the first 13 years was going from sponsor to sponsor, girl to girl, uh, meeting to meeting, group to group, because I didn't like people and I didn't really care if they liked me or not, but I... Sh- Definitely didn't want them to get to know me, so I wouldn't stay, you know, in a situation long enough for that. I'd, I'd stay just long enough to where you, you know, thought you were getting to know me, and then i go somewhere else. Um, and I wasn't one of those people that sit in a meeting and talk about, you know, I, I was really sick, and I'm sicker than you, and uh, I'm, I'm a badass. I didn't do any of that stuff, you know. I just, uh, I knew... Well, let me phrase it this way. I didn't know that I was a drug addict. I I I was in San Francisco. I was 17. I was living in a a single occupancy hotel room on Market Street in San Francisco with five adult black males. Um because I could panhandle more money in 30 minutes than they could in a couple of months. And so they really liked me. And, you know, we shot drugs together and they gave me the gift that keeps on giving, which is hepatitis. Fortunately, I got B. I didn't get C. Okay. But I had it for two years before I knew I had it. I did not know I was a drug addict because I was a drug addict. Uh, I never heard the concept of getting clean because I lived and ate and breathed getting loaded because I hated God as much as I hated everything else. You know, I hated myself. I hated you. I hated the sun came up. Oh shit, you're here again. Oh, we have to do this again. Uh, But I was too much of a coward to kill myself because I figured if I tried to kill myself, I'd either end up in a worse place or... I'd end up with some really ugly old woman taking care of me with bad breath that didn't like me for the rest of my life. So I just, you know, uh, I I did a lot of psychedelic drugs, but I did every drug that was available in the time that I was getting loaded. Um, I only did heroin twice that I know of. Okay. I smoked it once, and then I snorted it once, but I uh, never—I shot um, uppers and downers and coke, but I never shot heroin because my mother, um, she would dig her fingernails in my face and call me penis and weenus and bastard. And she would tell me I was going to end up just like my heroin addict brother. And thank God she did because that gave me the hateful— motivation to make her wrong. And, um, so I actually, um, did, uh, snort heroin for the first time the day before I got clean. Oh, wow. Really? And the, they, okay, so I was in a restaurant dining and dashing. That's where you sit next to the door so you can, Mm -hmm. you know, re. You know, escape after you eat without paying. And uh, I was sitting there, I was in Culver City, and this guy named Al Galinas came walking out of the back of the restaurant. And my mouth fell open because I never saw him other than under the pier ripping people off with a buck knife. And he had that wiry hair that was scattered everywhere. And he had these thick Coke bottle glasses that were always taped together and broken. And uh, he walked out of the back of the restaurant and his hair was combed and he had regular clothes on and his glasses weren't broken and he was smiling. And I was like, what the heck happened to you? And so he started taking me to meetings. And uh, he was going to AA because in those days everybody went to both programs. And, uh, you know, because he knew who I was, um, he only let me stay at his house one night. And then he gave me to another guy that gave me to another guy that gave me to Impact, the drug recovery house, where I told them, oh, I got to go. I got to go get my stuff. Uh, I didn't have any stuff. Uh, my last residence was a bomb shelter that I burned down or up, I guess, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> and um, so I left, and I, I went to the the dealer's house, and they found out, you know, what was going on with me, and they got me as loaded as they could and dropped me off at the at Impact. Impact and Cry Help were the first two recovery houses in the country. And uh, my they dropped me off. I was as loaded as they could get me. And uh, they asked me to read. I, I went right into a, a meeting uh, when they dropped me off. And uh, I stood at the podium and made a complete ass out of myself.
0: That could ruin your high. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Um, it, it, didn't, but because I mean, I really, literally, I had no idea what I was getting into. Um, but because I had hepatitis for two years, I was tired and I had gone to the hospital and they let me out and, um, it, you know, it's a lot, it's hard work living on the streets. There's no check at the end of the week. And, um, so I went to the drug recovery house thinking, you know, I'll get my shit together. I'll smoke dope, I'll get a girlfriend, I'll get a job, and everything will be cool. And uh, little did I know what was going to happen. You know, steps and principles and morals and values and dictionaries and learning and being with people that told me to keep coming back. And it was like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Because nobody ever told me to come back. They said, don't even look back. (laughs) Just keep moving. And so I stole and lied and cheated for a while because I was an addict. I didn't have anything, didn't know anybody. Uh, got on welfare. Um, decided I didn't want to do the welfare thing anymore, but I wanted to live where I was living. And the guy was so rude, he locked my stuff up because I wouldn't pay it. So I called the cops on him and they took me to jail. <laughs> I had some outstanding warrants, oh. um, so they made me a a coffee maker and quickly changed me to a, a cleaning ashtrays because uh, I was not good at making coffee. Uh, and Then a little while later, they made me a, a treasurer, and I commingled the funds somehow. I don't know how that happened. Uh, but anyway, I, I'm actually
0: know. the treasurer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, so you know, I, I I went through my trials and tribulations of of being an addict, clean, uh, doing things wrong. Uh, my sponsor said uh, no sex for the first year, and I almost abided with that. I I had this one girl, and I don't remember ever sleeping with her, but. I remember waking up one morning at 3 o'clock in the morning and she was sitting next to my bed staring at me. Uh, But I was in a a second-story community house where you had to have a key to get in, and she didn't have a key. So that kind of cured me of, you know, looking for a girlfriend for the first year. Besides, my sponsor said, "If, if anybody's interested in you, turn and run as fast as you can because if they're interested in you, there's something very wrong with them. And so... But after the year, all bets were off and it was all about girls and campouts and conventions and um, just having a blast. You know, I I really uh, never had a greater time in my life than getting clean, you know, because I... Okay, so the first morning when I woke up, I was sitting next on the edge of my bed, except for I wasn't in my body. I was up in the ceiling looking at myself, scared the shit out of me. And I went right back into my body. And then after that, I felt this black feeling. It was like a physical feeling and it was really evil. And so I started telling people about these experiences and they started looking at me funny. So I stopped telling them about it because it was really weird to them. But long story short, after uh, about 90 days, I, I recognized that that out-of-body experience was me being at zero from living on the negative side of zero all my life. I had never been at zero. And I didn't know what feeling good was because I spent all my time not feeling at all. Um, once I had it, you know, a brush with glue. That was the first thing I started I sniff glue. Then I sniffed gas, smoked cigarettes, smoked dope, you know, and I went down the ladder, you know, I didn't get high, I got low. You know, they call it getting high, but it's, it's not, Mm -hmm. it's a lie. And so, um, in that first 90 days, uh, I was very brain damaged from the drugs that I had done. And because of that, I was very hard to manage. Um, I'll just give you one brief example. I was in, I took a shower, had a towel wrapped around me, and I was going to go in the the coma room. They called it the snack room, but they had all these, you know, desserts and stuff, just pure sugar. And uh, the counselor said, oh, you can't go in there until after you, you know, get dressed. And I said, okay, and I turned and went in. And I didn't do it maliciously. I did it because I wasn't all there. And uh, same thing happened with my first job, uh, when I got out, um, the painter told me, no matter what you do, don't put the roller on the expensive paneling. We're painting the ceiling. And he had me so uptight and scared, I took the roller. I said, okay. I took the roller and rolled it right on the paneling. So again, I, I just want to give you an idea of the condition that I was in, um, because there's so much greater things to talk about than the mess, the, the pollution, right? And so on the 89th day, they shaved my head and they had invented a, a bunch of things that they would make people do, like they put a toilet seat around your neck. Really? And they would shave your head. Uh, they would give you uh, special clothes to wear, Uh, They would make you suck your thumb, uh, you know, all kinds of things is, you know, behavior modification kind of stuff. Okay. So the directors were out on vacation and when they came back and they reviewed all the stuff that I had been doing while they were gone, they kicked me out on the 90th day and they dropped me off at an AA clubhouse called the zoo in Pasadena. And it was a zoo, you know, and I was one of the animals I fit right in. You know, there were people using in the parking lot, uh, people drunk in meetings, uh, high in meetings, uh, drive motorcycle through, throw chairs at each other. Just, you oh,
0: know, really? it was, it oh. was a
1: live situation. And, um, so anyway, um, I was going to AA meetings and NA meetings and, I would spend weekends with this group of easiest way to describe it as mothers and fathers to me, you know, they just basically felt sorry for me. And they said, we, we need to take this kid and, you know, teach him. And so we would study the big book every weekend. Um, and, uh, there was Bud Hangstrom, the pedophile. There was Janet, the biker chick. Uh, that was skinnier than a rat and ugly as hell and very nice. Wasn't sure whether she was gay or straight. She would switch back and forth. And then there was Peppermint Patty and Jim Beard, who were in competition with who could get divorced more times. And, uh, And then there was my sponsor, Eddie Hall, who was the most magnificent hippie in existence, you know? And, um, and then there was Bill Skiles and another guy, I can't think of his name, but they would tell me things like give all your love, care, and attention to the thing at hand. Um, if you're not happy, you're not doing it right. And these things were inconceivable to me because of the rage and the hate that I had inside hidden under the of a hippie. And I had long hair. I had bright uh, red hair, believe it or not. And, um, you know, I was just doing the best I could. Uh, And I wrote, and I wrote, and I wrote, and I wrote. And it was vile spew. I mean, it wasn't worth rereading. And, um, but it was therapeutic because as I wrote and wrote and wrote, I became more objective. And then my, well, my first sponsor, when I first got clean in the recovery house, they told me to get a sponsor. So I got an AA sponsor and I got an NA sponsor because I, I went to both programs. I didn't know. And they said, well, you can only have one. So in the midst of me uh, trying to decide which one I was going to have in the second week of my recovery, uh, Tom Sninsnack, uh died on his motorcycle. He was my NA sponsor. Um, so he was my first sponsor of nine that have passed away since I've been clean. And he died clean. And uh, And then uh, Andy Hernandez had cancer and he was doing drugs because of the pain in the cancer. But I consider him have having died clean because of the circumstance. And then uh, Taylor and White and... Uh, all the other ones died of cancer. Um, no, uh, Bill May, he had a, a, a heart attack while having a, a surgery. It was really bizarre. Um, he was my last sponsor. And then Pepe, he died of cancer. Um, and uh, I, I've had, after my first year, I've had... 60 sponsors. I've moved 60 times. I've had 60 girlfriends. Uh, I've been married for uh, two years and then 20 years. Uh, I was married twice after that. One was illegitimate because they did some paperwork error, so I technically wasn't married. Okay, Um, But all of those things happened to me because I was an addict. And I was in love with the idea of being in love and I had no idea how to have a relationship. And the reason I know the number 60 is because we do inventory. We count things, Mm -hmm. you know, or I did anyway. Uh, Most of the people I, I grew up with counted things. So it's... Even though I hated God with a spirit of murder, it didn't affect his love for me at all. So he dropped me off in N.A., and N.A. took me to God. And so when I was 13 years clean, I moved into this area, Riverside, California, and there was a couple, a married couple that was running the area, totally personalities over principles. And I'm a book guy. You know, I'm a traditions guy. I started a home group <clears throat> and totally messed with their situation so they would send a bunch of their newcomers in to mess the meeting up and keep me from you know messing their deal up so the dude wanted to fight me in a meeting and he was an old dude i mean everybody was old to me uh because of my age and i'm a coward so i mean i mean i was a coward i'm not anymore uh but back then i was a coward i fighting never you know And then he had a guy attack me in a meeting, and I knocked the guy down four times sheerly out of fear. And I told the guy, you know, would you please stop? And he kept getting up. So after that, I had my uh, spiritual uh, encounter with God, and I got a higher power. So it took me 13 years, and because of the place I was living uh, being what it was, I didn't go to meetings for eight years. I went to church. And then circumstances took me back to Tampa, um, and I went back to meetings just like nothing ever changed. Because when I was getting clean, I was taught that if you have an excuse that's legitimate to not be in a meeting, it's okay. But if you don't, you don't. And uh, as far as your home group goes, the only reason you have to miss your home group is if you're dead. And... Um, you can have as many home groups as you want. You just vote really? in one. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And um, so when I got clean, the way we did the steps was, hey, did you admit you were powerless in your life? had become unmanageable? Uh, yeah. Shook my hand. Okay, you worked the first step. Have you come to believe the power of green yourself could restore you to sanity? Yeah. Okay, you worked the second step. Uh, do you, have you made a decision to turn your will and your life over to care of God as you understand him? And I said, well, I hate God and, you know, I don't want nothing to do with him. And they said, well, make the group your higher power. So my, the group was my higher power, whatever group I was in at the time for the first 13 years of my recovery.
0: That's where I'm at. Yeah.
1: And so, um, I, I, I want to make a point of sharing the things that I'm sharing to dispel all the bullshit you hear in meetings about, oh, when you're 90 days, it's going to be like this and you're going to do this and you're going to experience that and you should do this and you, and, and, you know, people really need to stop doing that. It's not going to happen. It's going to keep continue happening because it's been happening for all the time I've been clean. Okay. So I don't want to go to Naranon, so I just let it be. You know, because that's your choices. You can go to Naranon.
0: What's Naranon?
1: Naranon is like Alanon for oh, NA. Okay. Okay. And and so in, uh, uh Peppermint Patty was uh, my sponsor for five years. She she was the best sponsor I ever had, and she made me go to Alanon. And I would sit in an Alanon meeting, and these old ladies are knitting, and they're talking about stuff, and I had no idea what was going on. And I just told her, I said, "Listen, I'm just going to let people do whatever they want to do." I don't need to try to control them or blah, 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 just as long as I don't have to go to those meetings anymore. <laughs> and that was my experience with Naranon. Uh, because, again, in, in the beginning, you know, there was no Naranon, you know. And the Naranon meetings that I went to, I had really the same kind of experience I had in and I mean, I just, I don't want anything to do with that. Because I'm selfish and self-centered. I don't give a shit what you're doing. You know, you could do whatever you want to do. And I'm not responsible for your recovery. I'm not responsible for you getting loaded. And um, the way that I talk in meetings and the things that I say, if, if they trigger you, that's your deal. It's not my deal. I have no way of uh, knowing what's going to trigger somebody or what's going to whatever, right? And that's why we share our experience, strength, and hope. I'm not God. I don't know what you need to hear. I don't know what you don't need to hear. And it doesn't matter because the only thing I'm supposed to share when I'm here is my experience, strength, and hope. And if you're listening with a good attitude, you'll hear what you need to hear. If you're listening with a bad attitude or you're not listening, you'll either get a resentment and put it on your inventory or not. Maybe you're not going to do an inventory. You know, it doesn't matter because everybody, nobody was responsible when they were getting high because their life was unmanageable and they were crazy, right? And they were powerless. But now that we're clean, we are responsible for our recovery. And I don't believe in the word relapse. Relapse is a victim word. Um, I chose to stay clean because I learned how to play the video. I was in a phone booth, 120 degrees in California, and I called Eddie. And I said, Eddie, I want to get loaded. And he said, go ahead he had this gravelly voice. He was, he was the hippest guy in the world. Just go ahead. And I said, what the hell are you talking about? You're my sponsor. And he says, no, get loaded right there in the, in the phone booth. What do you do? Uh, I steal Lion cheat. Then what do you do? Uh, I steal and cheat some more. <laughs> you know, I got out of the phone booth I didn't want to use because he taught me how to play the video. One of the most valuable tools that I, that I learned in my recovery.
0: Play it all the way through.
1: That's right. And then he made me sit in the mirror and tell myself I love myself and I forgive myself unconditionally. Followed by, you're a MF and liar. You're a sack of shit. Because that's how I felt. And that's where I learned to act as if until it's true. So I sat in the mirror for five years. Telling myself I love myself and I forgave myself unconditionally, and then I loved and forgave God and I loved and forgave my mother. Oh, that's a good one. My sponsor says to me one day, he says, You got to forgive your mother. And I'm like, Right. <laughs> How am I supposed to do that? And he says, Repeat after me. I forgive you, mom. And I said, I forgive you, mom. And I said, Oh, yeah, I feel much better now. <laughs> and he said, he said, Well, okay, so you, you just forgave your mother. Congratulations. And I said, what the hell are you talking about? And he said, okay, so when the ping goes off because you think about her or somebody says something or she's coming into a room or leaving a room or whatever it is, and you have the ping go off, you remind yourself that you forgave her. And you keep doing that until there's no more ping. And I didn't. That's what happened. I said that I love myself in the mirror until I felt like I love myself in the mirror. Right?
0: And... Um, Is that kind of like fake it till you make it? Yeah. Act as if, you know, because if
1: you believe in a lie, the reason you believe in the lie is because you bought the lie and you can trade the lie in for the truth anytime you want. Right. And it takes what it takes. But when you are open-minded and willing and honest, you know, in the beginning I had to be honest about being dishonest. I had to be honest that I'm a lying, cheating thief. You know, I took the money from the treasury. Okay, I'm sorry. I wasn't sorry, but I said it because that's what you're supposed to say, right? And, you know, I would hurt people's feelings and I would say, I'm sorry. I wasn't
0: sorry. I didn't give a shit. Just going through the motions.
1: Yeah, yeah. For the first 15 years of my recovery, um, I'd be having a conversation with somebody just like I'm having with you now, right? Well- we'd be talking more than, but I would picture myself beating the shit out of you.
0: Really? Yeah.
1: And I asked my sponsor and he said, well, that's just part of, you know, you're being an addict and that'll pass. He didn't tell me it would take, you know, 14 more years. But, um, yeah. I mean, I wasn't going to hit anybody, but it was there. And, I had using dreams and I said, you know, I don't understand. I been mean, using, he says, that's the greatest thing. Using dreams are the greatest thing. I said, why is that? And he says, because you have the energy to use, but you're not using it. So it comes out in your dreams. It's a healthy release of something that you don't want to physically actually do. And I had my last using dream, uh, at about nine years and So the story goes like this. In Alcoholics Anonymous, if you read the very first, one of the very first pages in the book, it says we are more than a hundred men and women who have recovered from alcoholism. Recovered. Okay. okay? And one of the things in NA that's archaic that my opinion, which I give very little, but I'll take license here, um, is that... Uh, people don't understand that the word cured and the word recovered are two different words for a reason because they have different meanings. If I break my arm, I go through a period of recovery. Then I get the cast off and I'm recovered. But that doesn't mean that I can't break my arm again. I'm not cured from breaking my arm, but I'm recovered. Now, recovered might be uh, my arm's all messed up and deformed because the break was really bad. Or it could be like you never knew it was broken ever unless I told you. So that's, you know, one end of the spectrum to the other. Mm-hmm. But broken is broken and recovered is recovered. And and we are broken people in the fact that when we ingest a mind-mood-altering uh, substance, it triggers a state of powerlessness and lack of control because I was never a functioning addict. Uh, I break out in handcuffs and in jail, you know, if I were to use. Now when I first got clean, um, often came up the subject that I wasn't an addict because I was too young to be an addict. And I surely wasn't an alcoholic because the alcoholics would tell me, we spilled more than you drank. And I learned the snide remark, why well, you shouldn't have been so sloppy. <laughs>
0: um,
1: but the reality is that um, I, I did, uh, I was playing a vogue rehab game at one point because I wanted to get some free tools and some free money. Had nothing to do with work. I was just, no. Uh, I get the tools to sell them or whatever. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I was uh, had to go to therapy with a psychiatrist. Okay. Uh, the kind that, that wrote. That's all they did. They would.
0: Wrote they, scripts. They'd
1: poke you and write and poke you and write. So one day I said to him, I said, ah, yeah, I don't think I'm an addict. He stopped for the first time, put his glasses down on the end of his nose, put his pencil down and looked at me and said, do you mean to tell me after everything you've told me that you could even consider you're not a drug addict? I didn't know. I'm a crazy drug addict. I I I can't think well. You know, first thought wrong, right? Mm-hmm. But that changes with recovery. Right? When the shit hit the fan in the beginning, I'd be standing squarely in front of the fan. Right? Uh, it's your fault. It's my mother's fault. It's, you know, grab the blame thrower and light it up. mm mm-hmm. Mhm right? And then as I worked the steps, I learned to to step a little more to the left of the fan. Okay? And I joined the moat no matter what club, you know? But I graduated to the I don't even think about it anymore club. I'm not in front of a fan anymore. I've recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body that... Was acquired by developing a relationship with God as I understand Him, and as long as I maintain that relationship, I have no fear or worry of getting loaded, because it's not even in my consciousness anymore. And like I told you when we were having breakfast, you know, I, I have a a subtle dream once in a while about using, but it's not. I know exactly what it's from. It's from we were talking about it in a meeting, or I was sharing with a a newcomer, or doing inventory with somebody, or whatever. And it was associative thinking. And it was also probably because I ate before I went to sleep. (laughs) And uh, so, in the very beginning, I got three rules. And I always share this because to me, they're paramount. Uh, I was told don't take yourself too damn seriously, don't make any decisions when you're upset. And don't use no matter what and as i recovered now i also want to tell you that not only did i not know i was an addict i didn't have any idea of being afraid of doing the big bad fourth step or uh fear of the ninth step i didn't have any fear of the ninth step at all because i screwed everybody i ever met my sponsor said you have to make amends to everybody you ever meet that was you know the crux of my ninth step mm-hmm. um uh, and there was people that I made amends to, my uncle and my grandmother who I robbed, um, and you know different people like that. Right. So uh, the thing about amends is that uh, I was taught that if you owe somebody five bucks, don't go make amends to them unless you got five bucks in your hand, right? Um, and no matter what they say, you don't get in the ring with them because you came to make amends. Whether they accept it, whether they reject it. Whether they berate you, whether they hug you, it doesn't matter. You're there to make amends, and that's the result. Exactly. Okay. Um, and and really, there's really nothing else to know, in my mind, about making amends. You know, you you truly um, understand what it would feel like if somebody did that to you, and you go make go make amends for it. You say, Hey, listen, man, I I can't change the past, but here's the money I owe you right? I can't change the past, but I can tell you I've changed the way I live. And I know that that doesn't really benefit you because of what I did to you, but the best I can do is is let you know that that I am truly regret what I did. I don't say I'm sorry.
0: The word choice.
1: Yeah, it's a word choice because I'm not a sorry person. I'm a child of God. I'm a magnificent, precious, priceless creation of God that God loves and I'm perfect, meaning that I'm mature. And that's what recovered is, right? It isn't without flaw. See, people need to understand the meaning of words. Um, Jesus said in the Bible, forgive me if you hate Jesus, but, you know, it's my story and mm-hmm. i Um, the He said, be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. When I read that, I threw my Bible on the ground and thought, well, I'm going to hell. Because I didn't know the definition of the word. Then I learned that perfect means mature. So when I'm immature, as a a young addict, right, I go through working the steps and I mature. Now, the first time I worked the steps, I just write them out. Mm -hmm. And I read what the big book said about the first step and the second step and the third step. And then I wrote about what it made me feel. Okay. Right? And then I wrote my life story when it came to the fourth step. And then I shared it, and I did that in the first three weeks I was clean. And then I did it again, and I did it probably three times while I was in the recovery house. I didn't know any better. I didn't know that. It, I just knew that, are you willing? Do you want to stay clean? Okay, then do this. Okay.
0: It, do, t- it took me three years to work the steps the first time.
1: Right. But, but that's because you grew up in a culture that taught you to do it that way,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? Because if you read what can I do, the fifth chapter in the text of Narcotics Anonymous, that's exactly what it tells you to do. It says, get the book and work the steps all the way through. Because you can't say you're working the program of Narcotics Anonymous until you've worked through the first 36 steps.
0: What are the 36 steps? Uh, Possibly the steps, traditions, and concepts. Exactly. Okay. Okay, so, and it's easy.
1: You write out the step, you read what it says in the step in the basic text, right? And then you write what it what makes you think and feel. I'm crying, it made me angry, whatever it is. Then you go to the next step and then you go to the next step. and you do all 12 steps. Then you do the same exact thing to the traditions and the concepts. And when you're done with that, you can say, I am a part of the narcotics Anonymous program and I'm working the program. right? And a better word than working is practicing. Okay. Okay. I tell the people that I sponsor that you can't do anything right or wrong anymore. You're not good or bad anymore. You're practicing because you can always think better. You can always talk better and you can always act better. It's practice. Okay. So I teach them how to think. Most people don't know how to think. Now I know this may sound arrogant. Okay. But you know what? I've paid a lot of freaking money and time to get to where I am. And I don't mean money as in money. Your dues. Yeah. And what that is, is I've worked the steps. And I've helped other people work the steps. And I've done 12-step work. And I've done um, everything I can possibly do to help other people. That I went from an irritated uh, irritation of a person... That was selfish and self centered to the extreme, to an inspiration, exactly the opposite of that. Right. And if I wouldn't have done those things, I don't think I would have been able to stay clean through being in hospice, 121 pounds in a wheelchair.
0: That's, that's crazy. In
1: 2001. And then again, like an instant replay in 2008. But then even worse than that in 2013 my oldest of my three magnificent, beautiful redheads died. But worse, even worse than that, I got a call that my 17-year-old daughter had cancer. And then I, three weeks later, I got a call that my 24-year-old son had cancer. Really? My, my firstborn and my eldest. And then through that process, they learned that she didn't have cancer, thank God. Okay. And she still is alive and is rowdy as a person could be. Um, And uh, Brett uh, passed away four days after he finally let me go see him. He wouldn't let me come see him because he had a resentment. But then God did the miracle thing and um, he asked me to come. And I thought he was going to recover, you know. And when I saw him take his last breath, there was a live shot of morphine in the freezer because that's what's there when you're in hospice in case of an emergency. And I knew it was there, but I didn't even think about taking it. I didn't get pissed off at God. I didn't get pissed off at my son. I didn't get pissed off at anybody, you know?
0: Even yourself.
1: Yeah. Because I learned that, you know, it was like when we were talking about you being pissed off at yourself. You're not pissed off at me. No. You You, you know all the crappy things I've done that I've shared with you. Mm-hmm. But... It didn't make you like me any less. It didn't make you resentful towards me or any of those kinds of things. So I told you, switch chairs. You know, sit where I am looking at yourself. Now treat yourself the same way you just treated me, right? Because if you can treat me that way, you can treat yourself that way. And and it's a lie that
0: you can't. It's just something that you believe that isn't true. Something that that's, for me, very hard. But I I, I know it, it can be easy. That's right. Because if you say it's hard, it is. If you say you
1: can't do it, you can't. But if you say, I can do it, I will do it, I must do it, and you work on it, it will happen. And if you don't believe me, just look around. When I got clean, 90% of the people that raised their hand in the meetings had less than a year. In most meetings now, 90% of the people that raise their hand have more than a year. It works. It works. And it could work better if we had sponsorship meetings. Okay? We don't have sponsorship meetings. I just started a, a second sponsorship meeting. I started one years ago, and it worked as long as I was there. Okay. But when I moved away, it, it fell apart because people don't understand the value Of listening to people sharing their experience, strength, and hope on becoming a sponsee and what they went through in that process, and then becoming a sponsor and what it took and what they went through in that process. And when they do that, you're going to hear the good and the not so good. And so you're going to learn hey, I could be a better sponsee because I heard this and that and the other, right? Mm -hmm. Or I could be a better sponsor because I did this, that, and the other. And the culture will get better right and it's getting better but it's just getting better a lot slower right uh, i call them od meetings open discussion okay b- because they're necessary but it's not necessary to continually throw up right it's it's necessary to recover it's necessary to share the solution rather than the challenge
0: the amount of catharsis diminishes by Constantly saying your story. Right, right. Well, it,
1: no, you're, you're, uh, if I just heard you right, no, sharing it over and over and over keeps it alive. Right? Okay. If I cut my finger, I'd say, oh, dude, I cut my finger. And I'm going, hey, re- remember last week when I cut my finger? Oh, yeah. Hey, remember a year ago when I cut my finger? It's like, dude, right? It's like the old story about the two monks that left the, convent to take a message to another convent. And the Monsignor told him that, you remember, you don't talk to women. You don't touch women. Just go there and come back. So they're on their way and this damsel in distress. got to get across the river. And the guy picks her up and he takes her and puts her down and they're walking along. And the other guy, he's huffing and puffing and snorting. And the guy says, what's, what's your problem? And he says, well, you, 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 you talked to that woman and you picked her up. And I said, yeah, but I put her down three miles ago and you're still carrying her. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. So let go and let God. Turn it over. I used to tell my sponsor all the time, I can't turn it over. He said, why not? He said, because it's going to land on me. <laughs> I was paranoid. Mm-hmm. You know, I just figured there, there's no way anything good can happen to me. You know, because I, I was born under a bad sign. I walk under a black cloud. I mean, it doesn't matter what I do. Everything I touch turns to shit. That's who I was. Solid. That's who I was, and that's where I came from, and that's how the program changed me because I did it to the best of my ability. Uh, I had a, a a dyke biker chick one time share. Um, she told me everybody said you wouldn't stay clean. This was like a few years later, mm-hmm. and and I said, "Who's that?" And she said, "Everybody." <laughs> You know, Now, I never think like that. I don't look at somebody and go, oh, he's not going to stay clean. I I mean, I don't even know why that would be in somebody's consciousness, but that's just the way that I am, right? But I want to tell you this because I think this is very, very important. Most people, this is the way they think. Well, you know, I got a problem and I'm really trying hard. I'm working on it and I'm hoping it'll go away. And maybe if I'm lucky, maybe it'll happen. I mean, I don't know. I'm just going to do the best I can. That's how most people think, yeah? Mm -hmm. All right. Because they don't know how to think. right. First thing is, there's no such thing as trying. The imp Yoda even knows that. Don't try, do. Do Right? I probably didn't say that with the right dialect, but, you know. Yeah. Impersonations aren't my thing. (laughs) So, um, everything we think, say, and do is the practice of overcoming challenges in their context. Context is a very important word. If I'm throwing a ball up and down and I'm not a special friend, right? I'm not retarded. I can throw the ball up and down easy, right? But if I'm shaking your hand and we're talking about relationship, that's the other end of the spectrum, okay?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: There are challenges, both. In context, one is simple, one is challenging, very challenging. But there's no such thing as problem. Problem is like try. They're non-words i'm practicing i'm not trying because thinking is doing it's it's an actual electrical impulse it's measurable and they used to think it was inside your head now they've learned that your your thoughts are radiating outside of your head you're like a broadcaster okay right and when you broadcast the magnetics of your broadcast draw things to you. As a man thinks, so is he. As you sow, so shall you reap. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the heart springs, the issues of life. All those things are a diagram of the uh, design of thinking, right? And results. Thinking, doing, and results. So I can always think better. I can always talk better. I can always act better. And I'm practicing overcoming challenges. I'm not trying to overcome problems. So when I integrate that into my mind, it changes the filter, and it turns the light brighter in the dim room. You know, when I first got loaded, I had this experience of coming out of the fog, and I thought, oh, my God, (laughs) right? And then a few months later, I came out of the fog again, only to realize that I didn't come out of the fog. It just got thinner, right?
0: Yeah, I would think you go into the fog.
1: Right. Now, I was in the fog to begin with. Um but, you know, ignorance is bliss until you hit the wall. And if you're not working the program of Narcotics Anonymous, if you're, if you're not just simply taking the basic text and, and writing down the step, reading what it says, writing what that made you think and feel, then doing that to all 24 steps and then doing the exact same thing to the concepts, You cannot legitimately say that you're working the program of Narcotics Anonymous, right? I had a good friend of mine told me many years ago, he said, he said, I've never unsuccessfully sponsored anybody. And I thought, you arrogant bastard. (laughs) So what do you mean by that? He says, well, if they're not working the steps, they're not working a program. If they're not working the steps, they're going to get loaded and I'm not sponsoring them. You can't sponsor somebody that isn't working the steps right? And the ones that are working the steps aren't getting loaded. Makes sense. It made total sense, right? And um, I've always been this way and I've actually put it in writing. I've got tired of telling, you know, I sponsored a lot of people and I last about three weeks and they go away because they don't want to work the program. And I called Clancy Emmelson is an AA sponsor. He sponsored more people than anybody in the world. And uh, he was, my grand sponsor at one time. Okay. And we used to go to his yard and uh, clean up goat crap and play softball and have a picnic and have a speaker, right, every Saturday. And so I, I knew him. And so years later, I called him and I said, man, I'm a terrible sponsor. And he said, David, you're not a terrible sponsor. It's hard enough to sponsor AA people. It's almost impossible to sponsor NA people. That's what he said to me, right? And... He said, you know, you know you're not responsible for them staying clean. You know you can't make them do anything. All you can do is you can lead lead a a horse to water, but you can't Can't make make them drink. drink. Just like you can lead a person to knowledge, but you can't make them think. Right? And even if they think, it doesn't matter if they don't do. Because it's only through understanding and application that the principles work. Right? And uh, I have my 12 and 12. Somebody stole my big book. Um, But my 12 and 12, I have about 10 or 12 words copied and pasted into my book from the dictionary. Principle, moral, value, uh, words like that, because I didn't know what they were. And I had to put them in there because I couldn't remember them, right? And I would read and I'd go to La La Land. And I just couldn't focus, Right. My sponsor said, look, just go back to, you know, where you remember taking off. And I said, Well, I'll never get through anything. And he said, Yeah, you will. And a year later, I read through Keys of the Kingdom from beginning to end without leaving. And we had a party. <laughs> right. Because recovery happens to the people that happen to work the steps. And meetings won't keep you clean. It's it's a it's an absolute lie that meeting makers make it. Really? Yeah, meeting makers make it if they're working a program, right? If they're not working a program, it's just a matter of time.
0: That's a key point to the, the phrasing that that I constantly hear in meetings.
1: Right, right. And and uh, it really irks me that uh, – Now it doesn't irk me. It doesn't really bother me, but it is the way it is. Uh, they'll say, you know, uh, get a sponsor, get phone numbers and use them, uh, go to 90 meetings in 90 days, but they don't say work the steps. Why? That's the first thing they should say, right? Uh, followed right after, read the fifth chapter of Narcotics Anonymous in the basic text and do what it says before you do anything else. But they don't say that either, right? Mm-hmm. So I started a sponsorship in holiday, a sponsorship meeting in holiday on Tuesday night at 7 o'clock. There's a the full plug.
0: <laughs> um,
1: and, and that's what you hear. You hear how they became a sponsor uh, a sponsee, and then how they became a sponsor and the 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 good and not so good in that um I mean you know look i I could talk for hours more mm-hmm. um and in my mind, the hours more that I could talk about are way more important than however long I've spoke now, okay, and the reason I say that is because I'm gonna die. I was born, I'm alive, I was living till I was about 21, because at 21, 22, then you start the dying process, right? Okay. Scientifically. So I'm going to die. And I know that every thought that I have has a consequence. Every thought that I don't have has a consequence. So it just makes sense that, When I leave here, Mm -hmm. there's going to be a consequence,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. right? And I believe in Christ because it doesn't make any sense to not believe in him because what he says is no matter what, love, because it's only through me and love that you can enter into my father's house, which makes sense because if you're an asshole, you ain't coming into my house. And God created us in his likeness and his image because he has emotions. He created humor. He created evil. We couldn't know the difference between good and bad and right and wrong unless we are experiencing it. And that's why we're alive. And we have a choice to choose. Who am I going to serve? What am I going to do? Right? And it's okay with me if you're gay or you're um, an, an antichrist or your, uh, devil worship or whatever, you know, fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. Another religion, uh, another faith, you know, there's, there's tons of them. And I got involved in almost all of them in my first 13 years clean, because I knew there was a God and I wasn't him. Mm -hmm. And so I searched for God in all the wrong places. And then one day I had an epiphany and I saw that all of the stuff that I looked about was about me and self-realization. And then I saw the horizon of all of that. And then I knew that Christ was all about others. And what is the program about? It's all about others. People say, 47 years, why are you still coming to meetings? Well, there's this thing called the 12th step. And it says, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. We practice these principles in all our affairs and carried the message to other addicts. It says try. I don't use that word. So Mm -hmm. a little editing there on my part. Um, But that's why I still come to meetings because I'm giving back the life that was given to me. And I'm here to tell you that if you're not working the steps, you're living in the basement of your magnificent mansion. And I'll just close there.
0: Thank you so much for that. I, I, I'm so appreciative. Uh, it's amazing to, to hear your insight from your, your experience. I, I can't thank you enough. And I, I wanted to do, you know, this is a new segment on the podcast. Um, where we're going to delve a little delve a little deeper on a few topics. Uh, these are some questions I, I, I've come across in my recovery. Some are from family, some are from friends, and some are ones that that interest me. Um, and we'll just do a few. So uh, I, I've got one on support or sabotage: how to help or not help a loved one in recovery. So the 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 impact of, of family and loved ones on recovery, um, some of your personal experience with being supportive in relationships in recovery, um, that maybe some tips for supporting a loved one in recovery, uh, the importance of setting boundaries and avoiding enabling behaviors, and, and then lastly, just some challenges and rewards of, of building healthy relationships in recovery. So really... Relationships and recovery, how, how others can support us as addicts, and how an addict can support other addicts. Well,
1: I think most of my answers are going to be brief because yeah. I don't, I don't see a lot of um, reason to to go deeper than just to say that. Um. Patty made me go to Al-Anon in the beginning. And Naranon is the same thing as Al-Anon, but it's N.A. And, of course, it didn't exist yet. And so uh, Al-Anon teaches you how to deal specifically with other uh, people that are addicts. Mm -hmm. And... um, I hated it. Okay. Because I don't give a shit what you do. That self-centeredness. I don't need to fix. Yeah, exactly. I don't need to fix you. I don't need to think about you. I don't need to deal with you because you're your own person. You do whatever you're going to do and I don't have any control over it, which is true whether I'm an addict or not. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't go to al anymore. Uh, I, I got one program. I mean, I, 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 grad- I gradually, uh, I went to both programs for 15 years. And then a, around 15, 16 years, I stopped going to AA entirely. And it was no other reason than the fact that of my age and the fact that I'm an addict, mm-hmm. right? Which includes alcohol, obviously, and also includes cigarettes, but a lot of people aren't ready to deal with that And yet.
0: caffeine, I'm sure. No,
1: no, caffeine, is uh, it's mood changing and, and mind altering. So I've never seen anybody go for old coffee grounds and remake coffee, but <laughs> but I've personally gone through ashtrays and
0: got sick, you know
1: that kind of thing. So anyway, uh, and we talked about this at breakfast. Uh, losing the addiction of cigarettes was harder than getting clean, and um, uh, so anyway, that's another story. Um, I haven't smoked for 42 years and I'm very grateful and I will never pick up a cigarette. I don't give a shit what happens. Right. Um, so the, you know, the only answer I can really give to that is that I've sabotaged myself in many ways on many different levels and, uh, I'm still doing it. Um, and I'm very aware of it. And I'm very active in changing it, which is a that is a, a deeper whole mm-hmm. thing, you know, because like I said, I could talk about hours. Right and, and the more important thing is the spirituality that I have. That is the most important thing. Um, I spend I sp- yesterday I spent two and a half an hour hours meditating. Wow. And um creating a practice of doing that twice a day. Because I'm not getting smarter. I'm getting deeper. Okay. Um, I'm never a teacher. I'm always a student. And I'm a student that's always willing to give. But I'm not a teacher. What am I going to teach you? I'm not going to teach you anything. You're going to learn what you want to learn. And you're going to listen to who you listen to, and you're not going to listen to who you not listen to. And you can sabotage yourself in not listening, or you can sabotage yourself for listening, depending on what voice you're listening to. And these things are things that everybody has to learn on their own. And I can be an example of it. I can share about it when I'm asked. But an opinion unasked is not
0: valuable. What about how loved ones should help us? To, to the best of their ability you know how, how do they support how, I mean you, you've been 47 plus years you've got uh, I think a great perspective on that so how would you what would you have them you know what direction would you point them in
1: well okay so I have a family that is not a family
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, my my family uh my sister doesn't call me. Hey, how you doing? What's going on? And my brother, my older brother, is drinking himself to death. Doesn't give a shit. Doesn't want to talk to anybody, you know. And my younger brother is. I'm not going to say anything about him at all because okay. it's not appropriate. Um, I I love them, and I would do anything I could do for them, but it that isn't the situation. They don't come to me because that's that kind of family. My mom and my dad have passed away. My oldest brother passed away of, of addiction. Um, my father passed away of addiction. Um, and um, the... I always tell people the same thing. Read the family afterward in the, in the Alcoholics Anonymous book because that's where Al-Anon came from. Okay. And it tells you exactly how to deal with family members that are addicted. Okay. Okay. And um, most of them never read it. No. But, you know, again, all I can do, you know, you can lead a horse to, to but that's, water, that's but you can't direction. make him drink.
0: I I wasn't, I mean, I, I've heard of Al-Anon, um, but I, I didn't know that it, it came from, there's a specific piece of the big book or, you know, their big book that goes into what exactly a family member or a, a wife or a friend, ha- how they can support us.
1: Bill Bill Wilson's wife was the founder of Al-Anon. Makes sense. Yeah, exactly. Um, So the... The, the thing I have to share with you is after my last sponsor passed away, Bill May, um, it's kind of hard for me to get a sponsor cause everybody knows my story. <laughs> um, I don't want to be your sponsor. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, less, uh, a guy that, uh, was six months cleaner than me and AA, uh, became my sponsor. And he made me, he, I said, Hey man, I need a sponsor. And he said, he said, okay, but you're going to have to go to Al-Anon. And I said, okay, well, maybe I don't want you to do this one.
0: <laughs>
1: so I went to Al-Anon, uh, the 333 Club in uh, Tampa for about three years. And it was extremely um, valuable. Um, it was set me up in many ways for the event of my son passing away. Um, I think without it, I could have had some very traumatic responses of guilt, shame, and remorse. But because I went to Al-Anon, I didn't. Okay. So, and and Les said that everybody that he knows that goes to both programs has a much richer program. And I haven't gone to Al-Anon since then, but it isn't because... Of any specific reason. See, just that I, I just my life is busy.
0: Always, always thought that was for others, and that there was no benefit for me as an addict to go to it. So, I mean that that's something that I wouldn't have thought of, but it it it, it makes sense that that could enrich your recovery. Oh yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, sabotage
1: is just not understanding how to love yourself. And if other people are sabotaging you, um, it's just because you're putting yourself in the place of being a victim, uh, because you don't have the ability to do anything to me that I don't allow you to do. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously there's exceptions to the rule. If you come over and shoot me, you know. <laughs> but right by that's- and large, that's true. Okay.
0: So uh, I guess the the last question, you know, you've mentioned your your physical health and and also the meditation, and we talked about it kind of at breakfast, Um, your feelings on physical health and wellness and recovery. Okay.
1: So if I knew I was going to live that long, I would have taken better care of myself. Okay. Right? Yep. So- uh, I was in hospice, 121 pounds in a wheelchair twice. And um, before that, uh, my one of my longtime sponsors, Dave Clark, had fibromyalgia and um, was taking Vicodin legally, prescriptive wise, going to meetings, you know, and he was considered clean, you know, because he wasn't, you know, using it non-medically. It wasn't something uh, like a choice to use. I'll give you an example. I was at a party when I was new and uh, I I picked up what I thought was my Coke and took a drink of it, only to find out it was somebody's beer. Oh. And I had beer in my mouth. I ran over to the sink and I spit it out. Mm-hmm. And I stood, you know, you know how you go in those uh, uh, carnival rides where the bottom falls out and you're stuck to the. Mm-hmm. Well, right. I was like stuck to the refrigerator and I was going back and forth in my head, did it get loaded? Did I get? Did I have to change my recovery date? I'll tell you how important my recovery was to me. And uh, where I got clean, having an anniversary was having a birthday because we figured we were dead mm. and that we were rebirthed when we got clean. Okay. And so we had cakes and candles. So this guy gives me a candle off of his forest fire. He had like a million candles on his cake. And he gave me a candle and he said, save this for your first year. I looked at that candle every day for a year. I went to the men's stag meeting where I got the candle and I was standing at the podium crying and I go, I don't know why I'm crying. And some <laughs> guy yelled from the back of the ground, it's because you're back of the room. It's because you're grateful, asshole. <laughs> uh, I didn't know I was grateful. I mean, I didn't really didn't know why I was crying. Um, but so yeah. Anyway,
0: so what what is your your opinion on? Like, you you mentioned the person that that was sick with fibromyalgia and, and
1: yeah, I, I lost my trend there. I went off on a rabbit trail. No no no. So I, so he he ended up getting loaded on purpose.
0: So for me, I I actually also have something very much like um, fibromyalgia, and, and I I am on painkillers. Not Vicodin or, or opiates. It's, it's something different. Right. But I, I, I'd like to get your perspective on being prescribed drugs and taking them appropriately. How does that fit <clears throat> into our program?
1: Okay. Good segue back to what I was forgot to finish. <laughs> so, uh, so Dave started uh, using drugs, and he used drugs for two years, coming to meetings, acting like everything was good. And then he confessed. And make a long story short, I became his sponsor. And he stayed clean for a while, and he got married to Jennifer, another story. And then uh, he got loaded a couple of times after that. And now now he's been clean for 16 years. Okay, so because he got loaded, then I got cancer. Now, when I got cancer, and I say I was 121 pounds in a wheelchair, you have to understand, I had uh, tumors on my bowel, And I had um, uh, cancer in my left uh, lymph uh, pelvis area and my armpit. And they were prescribing me the maximum amount of painkiller that they could give me by law, and I was still in pain. So because of my experience with Dave... I was scared to death that I was going to end up using. Right. So what I would do is I would like not take the drugs that I was supposed to take when I was supposed to take them. And so what would happen is the pain level would go up till I couldn't bear it anymore. And I'd have to take them. My wife wanted to kill me because then I had to take them and it took a lot longer to get back to normal. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and, uh, a friend of mine, Eddie, he came over to my house and he said, shut up and just take this shit you're supposed to take the way you're supposed to take it, right? And uh, people in the program have always loved me, the, the ones that matter, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, they've always been there for me. And um, so... Anytime I talk to people about medication and recovery, I tell them all the same thing. Okay. Addicts have no business telling you what you should do. I can share my experience, strength, and hope with you, and you have to derive your own decisions however you do that. Okay. But don't let somebody that doesn't know their ass from a hole in the ground tell you what you should do. And that's why it's emphatic. That you don't use you in a meeting, you use I. I did this. I didn't do that. I. This is my experience, strength, and hope. I don't know what you should do. I'm not God. Very important. No matter what the subject.
0: Okay. Um. I. I can't thank you enough. I'm again so appreciative that that you've you've given me this this opportunity to to listen to your story and and to learn from you i i i know your feelings on being a teacher um but i i i do want to let you know that i in our short time and our short conversations just so far i you've made a, a huge impact on me and and i want you to know that and again i'm so appreciative And I thank everyone for listening, and we'll see you on the next one.
1: Thank you, David. I really appreciate the opportunity to share.